Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 19th through Tuesday, the 24th, feature guest conductor James Gaffigan and piano soloist Conrad Tau. The program includes Overture to the School for Scandal, music by Samuel Barber, with Conrad Tau, Piano Concerto in F by George Gershwin, and after intermission, Symphonic Dances from Leonard Bernstein's score for West Side Story and Sense Maya, music by Sylvester Wehueltas. And here are Philip Husher's program notes on George Gershwin's Piano Concerto in F, a work lasting about 32 minutes. In 1919, when George Gershwin scored his first big hit with the song Swanee and the arch-modernist Arnold Schoenberg was developing the 12-tone system, it seemed unlikely that these two men would ever cross paths. But in fact, they actually became friends. Each recognized that the other had made an indelible impact on 20th century music. In 1937, when Gershwin died of a brain tumor at the age of 38, Schoenberg wrote, Music to him was the air he breathed, the food which nourished him, the drink that refreshed him. Music was what made him feel, and music the feeling he expressed. Directness of this kind is given only to great men, and there is no doubt that he was a great composer. Gershwin's true greatness was in the natural way he closed the gap between commercial and serious music, and he was talented enough to succeed brilliantly in both worlds. As Schoenberg once noted, surely with a touch of envy, Gershwin was the rare composer whose feelings actually coincide with those of the average man in the street. After the success of Swanee, Gershwin had a steady stream of hits and made the kind of money that is unheard of in the classical music business, but he was determined to write serious music that was equally popular. He even asked Ravel and Stravinsky for lessons. Ravel declined. When Stravinsky learned that Gershwin earned $100,000 a year, he allegedly suggested that Gershwin give him lessons instead. For all their jazzy rhythms, bluesy harmonies, and big Broadway melodies, Gershwin's most important and beloved works were written in the traditional European forms. An American in Paris is really a tone poem for orchestra. Gershwin gives it that subtitle on the first page of the orchestral manuscript, and Porgy and Bess is an opera. The most classical of all Gershwin's works is the Concerto in F for Piano and Orchestra, written in the form established by Mozart and Beethoven. It was commissioned by the conductor Walter Damrosch, who, astonished by the originality and brilliance of Rhapsody in Blue, immediately asked Gershwin for a concerto proper. Gershwin's first biographer, Isaac Goldberg, claimed that after accepting Damrosch's commission, Gershwin went out to buy a book on musical form to see how a concerto was constructed. Gershwin may have wanted a refresher course, but he was far from untrained. For several years, he had studied harmony, orchestration, and musical form with Edward Kelenyi. But Gershwin had talents no other American composer at the time could touch. He possessed a phenomenal gift for melody and a natural feeling for dramatic pacing that no textbook could ever teach him, and he seemed to know innately what audiences would like, remember, and want to hear again. 
In the first movement, Gershwin's lively, abundant ideas and classical sonata form are sometimes an uneasy fit. The development section, in particular, is mostly variation and vamping, but the material is inspired throughout, and Gershwin, like a great actor or comedian, has an uncanny knack for timing. The slow sensual movement combines song form with the classically defined rondo. It is really a big blues number for piano with a wonderfully sultry solo for the muted trumpet. The third movement is a brief rondo that reprises themes from the earlier movements and ends in the best Broadway fashion with a grandioso return of the main theme of the opening movement. The Concerto in F stands as one of the high points in the merger of European sensibilities and the freedom, rhythmic excitement, and bravado of jazz and American musical theater, a new tradition fostered alike by the Europeans Stravinsky and Mio, both of whom scooped Gershwin in their efforts but could not match his success, and the Americans Copland and Bernstein. The true significance of Gershwin's achievement was too little appreciated at the time. Only a week before his death, Gershwin complained to a friend about the indifference he encountered in Hollywood. I had to live for this, he asked, that Sam Goldwyn should say to me, why don't you write hits like Irving Berlin? But few composers were as widely loved during their lifetime as Gershwin. His premature death came as a shock to the American public. The novelist John O'Hara said, I don't have to believe it if I don't want to. And it was recognized even then as an incalculable loss to American music. Program notes by Philip Husher on George Gershwin's Piano Concerto in F. And now on to Leonard Bernstein's symphonic dances from West Side Story, the suite of dances lasting about 23 minutes. Originally, it was the story of a Jew and a Catholic falling in love during the time of Easter and Passover. Later, when the subject was switched to ethnic gang warfare in New York City, it was in all seriousness called Gangway. But when it opened on Broadway in 1957 as West Side Story, the shape of American musical theater was changed forever, just as Leonard Bernstein had predicted. The initial idea came from Jerome Robbins, whose smart and flashy choreography would contribute so decisively to the final product. In 1949, while Robbins was coaching actor Montgomery Clift on how to play Romeo in a more contemporary manner, Robbins began to envision an updated version of the Shakespeare play. Bernstein's own log suggests that he realized the show's broader implications as well as its enormous challenges as soon as Robbins contacted him on January 6, 1949. He wrote, Jerry R. called today with a noble idea, a modern version of Romeo and Juliet set in slums at the coincidence of Easter Passover celebrations. But it's all much less important than the bigger idea of making a musical that tells a tragic story in musical comedy terms using only modern comedy techniques, never falling into the operatic trap. Can it succeed? It hasn't yet in our country. I'm excited. If it can work, it's the first. But various postponements and interruptions, a musical version of Candide among them, several creative impasses, and Bernstein's increasingly busy schedule kept the modern Romeo off the boards for another eight years. 
Finally, on February 1, 1957, Bernstein wrote in his diary, Candide is on and gone. The Philharmonic has been conducted back to Romeo. From here on, nothing shall disturb the project. And this time, he was right. By then, the working title was East Side Story, but when it was discovered that the tenements on that side of Manhattan had all been raised, the setting was switched to the gang-dominated stretches of the Upper West Side. West Side Story opened on Broadway on September 26, 1957. Although the reviews were not entirely enthusiastic, Harold Clerman, writing in The Nation, found it phony and accused Bernstein and his colleagues of slumming in order to make money, nearly everyone seemed to agree that fresh air had at last blown through Broadway. West Side Story ran for nearly two years, tallying 722 performances, toured nationally for another year, and then returned to New York City for an additional 253 performances. Bernstein's music became overwhelmingly popular throughout the country almost at once, and over the next few years, his publisher was kept busy printing editions of songs, selections, and highlights from the score, as well as arrangements for guitar, Baldwin organ, and even accordion. In 1961, shortly after they had completed the scoring for the film version of the musical, Sid Ruman and Erwin Costell prepared a suite of symphonic dances from West Side Story under the composer's supervision. Ruman and Costell proposed a list of numbers Bernstein determined a running order. The principal sections are a prologue depicting the rivalry between the Jets and the Sharks, somewhere in which the gangs unite in friendship, a scherzo depicting a visionary world of open space, fresh air, and sun, a combative mambo, a cha-cha treatment of Maria, the lover's first meeting, a fugue on cool, the climactic gang rumble, and the tragic finale based on I Have a Love. Like the musical, the suite ends with a haunting, unresolved chord. Program notes by Philip Husher on the symphonic dances from Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story. And now on to Silvestre Rehueltas's Sense Maya, a work lasting about seven minutes. Born on the last day of the 19th century, Silvestre Rehueltas helped to lead the music of Mexico into a new era. His was a brief difficult and colorful life. He lived and worked in Mexico City, Mobile, Alabama, San Antonio, Texas, and Chicago. He fought for the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War, periodically spent time in mental institutions, and died of alcoholism at the age of 40. Rehueltas did not begin to compose seriously until the last 10 years of his life, and his career is largely one of unfulfilled promise. He is something of a tragic figure, like the alcoholic hero of Under the Volcano, the Mexican novel by Malcolm Lowry, who lived in Cuernavaca during Rehueltas's final years. I do not think I was a child prodigy, Rehueltas has written, but I showed some inclination for music quite early, as a result of which I became a professional musician. Silvestre started to play the violin at the age of seven, and at 13, he went to Mexico City to study violin and composition. 
Three years later, he decided to further his studies abroad, not in Europe, but in the United States. First at St. Edward College in Austin, Texas, and then for two years, beginning in 1918, at Chicago Musical College, where he studied violin under Sammatini and composition under Felix Borowski, who was also the program annotator for the Chicago Symphony. The orchestra did not play Rejueltas' music until after Borowski's death in 1956, denying him the pleasure of writing about his own students' progress. Rejueltas returned to Mexico in 1920, and although he later spent more time in Chicago and elsewhere in this country, Mexico remained his home for the rest of his life. In 1929, Carlos Chavez, an influential composer, conductor, and pianist, asked Rejueltas to serve as the assistant conductor of the Mexico Symphony Orchestra. They had toured together in the mid-twenties, giving 26 recitals of music for violin and piano. Rejueltas settled in Mexico City, became one of the principal players in the development of musical life there, and began to devote more of his time to serious composition. In many ways, Rejueltas was a self-made composer. Despite his training in conservatories in Mexico City and Chicago, he always said he never learned much there, but later found better teachers in the Mexican people and my country. He remained indifferent to many of the conventions of music and musical form. The novelist and composer Paul Bowles has remarked how Rejueltas epitomized the true revolutionary to a younger generation of Mexican musicians because he went straight toward the thing to be said, paying as little attention as possible to the means of saying it. Rejueltas's musical style draws from many sources. I like all kinds of music, he said. I can even stand some of the classics and some of my own works, but I prefer the music of the people of the ranches and villages of my country. The way his compositions reflect the music of Mexico and the spirit of its people has always attracted notice. I have never used popular or folkloric themes, he said by way of clarification, but most of the tunes, or rather motifs that I have used, have a popular character. Like the great Spaniard Manuel de Falla, Rejueltas's absorption of his country's indigenous style is complete. As Paul Bowles writes, there was an intuition functioning that transformed folk music into art music with a minimum of purity lost. Rejueltas's major works all date from the 1930s. He completed his first orchestral score, Juan Mahuac, in 1930. This was an unusually rich and exciting time for the Mexican arts, with the painter Diego Rivera recently married to Frida Kahlo at the height of his powers, and the country's young film industry particularly active and adventuresome. Sense Mayo, composed for small orchestra in 1937 and expanded into a full-scale orchestral work the following year, is the piece that brought Huejueltas to international attention, though not until Leopold Stokowski recorded it in New York in 1947. At the time of his death in 1940, Huejueltas still remains largely unknown outside Mexico. Sensei Maya is based on the Afro-Cuban writer Nicolas Guillon's poem about a ceremony for the sacrifice of a serpent. Rejueltas's thumping ostinato is the musical echo of Guillon's refrain, 
Mayombe, Bombe, Mayombe, with its thrilling, obsessive, rhythmic thrust, it's written throughout in 7-8 or 7-16, and powerfully dissonant harmonies, this extraordinary little score is as original as anything in European music of the time, but it owes nothing to those distant schools or celebrated composers. It represents one of the signal moments when American music unmistakably came into its own. All this music seems preceded by something that is not joy and exhilaration, as some believe, or satire and irony, as others believe, the Mexican poet Octavio Paz wrote of Rehueltas' output. That element, better and more pure, is his deep-felt but also joyful concern for man, animal, and things. It is the profound empathy with his surrounding which makes the works of this man so naked, so defenseless, so hurt by the heavens and the people more significant than those of many of his contemporaries. Program notes by Philip Husher on Silvestre Huehuertas' Sensemaya. I'm Rich Caparola. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.